Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And today we are covering a topic that personally I thought was a relic of a bygone era, something that we didn't quite have to worry about anymore because it was something that only happened to women in ancient or old cultures, and that is mass hysteria. And it is by far not a relic of a bygone era. Mass hysteria also goes by names such as, wait for it, mass psychogenic illness, mass sociogenic illness, collective hysteria, and conversion disorder. And I came across uh, some blogs recently talking about this topic because in the last decade, not only has it popped up in the news a lot, but it has popped up in the news because it is happening, it seems, solely to teenage girls at school. Well, let's talk a little bit about anecdotally what mass hysteria is, because when you first alerted me to this topic, Caroline, I had no clue what you were talking about. I received an email saying, <laughs> hey, we should do something on mass hysteria. And I just stared blankly at my <laughs> screen for a moment. But once I started reading about it and watching interviews with these girls affected by these cases of so-called mass hysteria, I was captivated Mm -hmm. because what it looks like when interviewers are talking to these girls, there's a segment, for instance, of uh, girls on Dr. Drew talking about this this esteemed show, television show, Dr. Mm -hmm. Drew. It looks like these girls have something akin to Tourette's syndrome. Yes, absolutely. A lot of these girls across across cases, what you know, wherever this is happening, these girls tend to experience tics. Uh, shouting, shaking, all of this kind of stuff that, yeah, you would associate typically with Tourette's. And it ends up, what ends up happening in a lot of these cases is health professionals, the media, like people flood these towns. You know, Erin Brockovich went to one school where this was happening and wanted to test the soil. She was concerned that a train derailment several decades before was leading to some strange health condition. And Basically, what was found uh, in that particular case in New York and several others is just that, no, this isn't an organic environmental toxin that's causing this. It seems to be something that is much more in the brain. Now, this might be ringing bells for people due to that upstate New York case. Uh, this was a situation that happened at a place called Leroy High School where 13 girls and one boy started experiencing twitching, clapping, and shouting tics. And I remember seeing one of the interviews with a girl who had a bruise on her face because she, her tics were so violent yeah. that her her cheek was slamming into her shoulder and actually bruising her. And yeah, and they and they looked high and low for some kind of toxin, some kind of environmental explanation. And there was actually a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine saying we could not find anything. And they poured a ton of money into looking for reasons why, like the state came out and said, hey, we've we've put six figures into Mm -hmm. this case. 
nothing. We got nothing. Yeah. And so basically mass hysteria or, or uh, these other common terms for it is used to describe a situation in which several people suffer from similar hysterical symptoms, either from a phantom illness or an inexplicable event. And actually, it happens way more often than I thought. Uh, Dr. Mark Hallett, who's with the National Institutes of Health, uh, said that on average, they get reports of two such cases a week. A week. Yeah, and a lot of, in fact, half of these mass psychogenic illnesses occur in schools And there is a highly gendered aspect to this, which is why we're talking about it on the podcast, because it's far more common among young women than any other demographic group. Yeah. And I mean, yes, there are outliers for for sure. Usually it'll happen among a group of young women at a school. But as you know, we'll get into this. Thanks to news coverage, social media coverage, other people can, quote unquote, catch it if they're kind of keeping up with this story. But talking specifically about the gender link, uh, Robert Bartholomew, who's sort of like the leading name in the field of mass hysteria, uh, he's a sociologist in New Zealand who's been studying cases of mass hysteria for more than 20 years, said that typically mass hysteria is confined to a group of girls or young women who share a common physical space for a majority of the time. So young women in schools getting this mass hysteria, it all makes sense according to Bartholomew. And this guy should know. He has studied more than 600 cases dating back to 1566. And he said, listen, the gender link, it's undeniable. It's just a question of why. And we'll dig into possible whys for that later in the podcast. Um, but one thing that Bartholomew has said is that there has been a, quote, sudden upsurge in cases of mass hysteria. And uh, there was an article in The Atlantic that came out in September of 2013 talking to Bartholomew and covering cases, including Leroy and one standout individual in that case, because which was this older woman in the community who was not affiliated with the high school at all, mm-hmm. who also developed these tics. And Bartholomew thinks that it has to do with uh, the social media influence. Basically, she heard about this incident going on among these high schoolers via Facebook. And then all of a sudden she starts experiencing debilitating ticks as well to the point that she had to take medical leave yeah. from work. Right. Exactly. Well, so let's, let's give just a brief rundown of some other uh, episodes of mass hysteria that have popped up in the news. In 1998, there was an outbreak of illness at a Tennessee school. Uh, more than 170 students, teachers and others sought emergency treatment. But after investigating, you know, investigators found no virus, no toxins, no actual illnesses, and they dubbed it mass hysteria. Similarly, in 2002, there were 10 teenage girls at a small rural North Carolina high school that had epileptic-like seizures and fainting. After the buildings were inspected, nothing was found to explain the outbreak. But then, if you look at the mid-2000s onward, you do see a distinct uptick in these cases, which Robert Bartholomew would probably correlate to the rise in social media, perhaps. Uh, For instance, in 2006 alone, there was a case in Portugal where um, there were more than 300 students at 14 different schools that reported, this seems kind of odd, they reported feeling symptoms similar to those experienced by characters on a popular youth soap opera. And eventually it forced some of those schools to temporarily close to try to take care of this problem. And I'm now thinking of what would have happened if if we had started just acting like characters on Dawson's Creek. 
Oh. The OC or something. Oh, Lord. I don't know. We would just would have been really angsty. Yeah. Well, I was already there. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah. <laughs> My diary was full. Um, also in 2006, at this really strict boarding school in Mexico, 600 out of 3,600 girls ages 12 to 17 showed strange symptoms such as trouble walking, fever, and nausea. And the following year, at least eight girls at a Roanoke, Virginia high school developed strange twitching symptoms. And the school district ended up spending tens of thousands of dollars to investigate. But again, no environmental cause. Tanzania is another place where you hear about these uh, mass hysteria epidemics breaking out a lot. In 2008, for instance, again, you have a group of 20 girls at a school who all of a sudden lose consciousness while others are sobbing, yelling and running around the school. And I think it's also in Tanzania where there have been uh, incidences of laughing Mm -hmm. epidemics. And there's a YouTube video about this. And even though it's called an epidemic, it's kind of cute because a lot of the footage is really just school children, like groups of Tanzanian school children laughing hysterically. You're like, oh, what's so bad about that? Yeah, I, I, this our office could use a little laughing <laughs> epidemic every now and then. Except it doesn't stop. Yeah, it's true. Uh, well, in January 2013, one of the more recent uh, episodes, there were about two dozen teenagers at a school in Danvers, Massachusetts, who began having mysterious hiccups and vocal tics. And what's interesting about Danvers? Dun dun dun. Danvers used to be Salem. Scene of the Salem witch trials, which were also considered to be a form of moral mass hysteria or a moral panic. Yeah. And today, some researchers think that the so-called demonic signs that the girls involved with the Salem witchcraft trials were exhibiting were maybe the same kinds of psychological issues that these girls at Essex Agricultural and Technical School in Danvers today mm-hmm. are also exhibiting. Interesting. Very interesting. So what is this? What is going on? How does this work? Well, uh, a couple different things can happen. And one of those is that there can be an actual physical detectable trigger like a bad smell or a rumor of exposure to a poison. And so basically, if one person gets sick, others in the group also start feeling sick. And sure, the first person to get sick might have actually had a real illness. They could have had food poisoning. Maybe they just felt nauseated. But then this power of suggestibility comes into play where other people are like, oh, well, I might... I might feel kind of lightheaded and nauseated, too. I don't know what's going on. Um, and so, yeah, as you get things like bad smells convincing people that they actually are, are possibly being poisoned. Um, it could also start with conversion disorder. And so conversion disorder and mass hysteria are not exactly synonymous. But you have conversion disorder when psychological stressor, stressors like trauma or anxiety manifest Physically. And when this happens, it's basically a mental health condition in which a person can experience things like blindness, paralysis, or other neurologic symptoms that cannot easily be explained away by a simple, simple medical test. It's not like you can go get a blood test and they're like, oh, well, you're experiencing conversion order disorder. Usually a whole slew of things have to be ruled out before they hit on conversion disorder. And the symptoms usually begin suddenly after a stressful experience. And people who are at risk for conversion disorders uh, usually have a mental illness or some other mental health problem or dissociative disorder in which they are, are not able to manage their feelings or their emotions very well. And when a conversion disorder becomes 
contagious, that's when you have the development of what we think of as the mass psychogenic illness or the mass hysteria. And one term that pops up a lot, too, is something called the nocebo effect. So essentially, that's the opposite of the placebo effect. Like if you take a sugar pill thinking that it will have positive effects on you, and so you all of a sudden start to feel better. Mm-hmm. The nocebo effect is when, say, uh, y- you smell something strange and you don't know what it is, but you just assume it's terrible, and all of a sudden you start exhibiting mm-hmm. all of these horrible symptoms when, come to find out, it was maybe just a, a pickle gone bad in the <laughs> fridge or something. No, I mean, when I started thinking about it, I mean, this obvious, I've never been a uh, part of mass hysteria myself, Kristen, but I, I feel like this has happened to me where someone else is like, oh, I, something smells bad. I don't feel good. And I'm like, oh, maybe, oh, no, I'm starting to feel dizzy. I, the power of suggestibility, man, it is strong. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is one thing, too, that, that started happening a lot more after the 2011 uh, Twin Towers attack and the rise of the the anthrax Mm -hmm. threats, all of a sudden you have a lot of people calling and complaining of symptoms that are similar to anthrax poisoning, Mm -hmm. uh, claiming that they had received mail with anthrax in it. And, I mean, essentially we're kind of making up a lot of this stuff in our mind due to fear and panic. Almost any time you have an outbreak of mass hysteria, there's some kind of real world trigger, whether it's economic upheaval or uh, rigid gender roles to an extreme extent or just generally stressful factors like uh, exam time, right. for instance, is a lot is, is a big um, time when this breaks out in schools. Yeah, I mean, I would say as the non-scientist that I am, I mean, I would say that stress seems to play a huge role in this. And, you know, I. I think it's not uncommon to, even if it's just on an individual level, feel some sort of psychosomatic illness when you are feeling stressed, whether it is exams or in the case of Tanzania, whether it's some like huge cultural rift going on. And, you know, Kristen did mention that uh, there are a lot of reports of mass hysteria of various forms breaking out in Tanzania. And one of the first was in 1962. It was a laughing epidemic and it lasted Nearly 18 months, and locals blamed angry ancestors. But you have to look at the context. During the 1960s, there were a lot of Western missionary schools that were opening, and they were notorious for trying to do away with the students' cultural heritage, uh, focusing on Western and Christian religious and cultural practices. And so these students, these young girls, are experiencing this inner struggle because their families believe one thing and they always have believed one thing, but then you have these people coming in, teaching them different religions, different practices, and so there is this conflict that happens. And so it's around this time that the first of several laughing epidemics start taking place in Tanzania. Yeah, and when you look into different anthropological explanations for mass hysteria. Gender does come up a lot, especially in more developing nations, because they link the mass hysteria to patriarchal societies, for instance. Um, this idea that women are inherently suggestible, and in cases where something like the Salem witch trials, where there are assumptions of demonic possession and mm-hmm. witchcraft, which those kinds of scenarios are still happening around the world today, a lot of times women in those societies are considered more susceptible to possession 
because of their social submissiveness. So it's like they are, um, you know, they're almost literally more, more open to it. They aren't going to be as resistant to so-called demonic possession. So you see them exhibiting these signs more often. But in more of Western context, say in the case of the Danvers High School, where it's going to get a lot of media attention. One thing that the American family physician points out uh, in terms of the contagious factor of mass hysteria is how when it happens, it can become almost exponentially contagious because all of a sudden you have reporters everywhere. Mm-hmm. You have now, what again, the social media effect of people tweeting about it. It's probably flooding your Facebook. You're getting emails about it. It's it's almost like you become surrounded by this hysteria. Right. And it's it's not exactly imagined. While it might not be an actual disease, an actual sickness, it's not just in your brain, and yet it is in your brain. Um, these people who are experiencing mass hysteria or uh, mass psychogenic illness, they do have headaches, or they do actually feel dizzy or nauseated. It's just that it's not caused by germs or poison or anything like that. And the New York Times, back in 2012, looking at this topic, talked about how the illness might have something to do with the amygdala, which is where kind of your startle responses start in your brain. Yeah, the amygdala has actually been shown to be overactive in patients with conversion disorder. And uh, the New York Times interviewed Mark Hallett, who we cited earlier. He's the senior investigator at the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. And he says that, quote, ordinarily the amygdala might create psychological distress, but instead in these cases, it would create an involuntary movement, talking about those tics that you see sometimes exhibited in uh, the high school girls affected by this. But one comparison, too, that comes up a lot in explanations of Mass hysteria is it's just like a really exaggerated form of stage fright. Right. Where all of a sudden and I've experienced this, oh, to a horrible extent Mm -hmm. where, yes, your stomach is in knots. All of a sudden you have to go to the bathroom like 25 times for no good reason. Your palms are sweating. I mean, there is a physical discomfort that comes with that kind of psychological anxiety. Sure. Well, what's also interesting to look at, and researchers have pointed this out, is that the things that we are afraid of or the things that we're concerned about when we experience mass hysteria have changed with society. Uh, this is coming from a 2002 British Journal of Psychiatry review of literature on mass hysteria. And they found that this mass sociogenic illness mirrors prominent social concerns So before 1900, we have reports that are dominated by episodes of motor symptoms, typically dissociation, psychomotor agitation in an environment of pre-existing tension. But 20th century reports feature anxiety symptoms triggered by sudden exposure to an anxiety generating agent like a like a bad smell or food poisoning rumors because we're moving into the era of the bomb, things like that. Yeah, and then from the early 80s to present day, we see that increasing presence of chemical and biological terrorism themes, people being scared that they are being poisoned by some kind of terroristic agent. And yeah, as, as I, I brought up uh, September 11th mm-hmm. a few minutes ago, it that has definitely uh, triggered a peak in these kinds of reports. Right. But it's, I mean, it's interesting to see. And when you look at the history of mass hysteria, 
you know, when you talk about uh, women being possessed or nuns being possessed by evil things, they end up being possessed by things that people are afraid of at the time. Like cats? Like cats. Okay. Let's go ahead and talk about the meowing nuns. Yeah. Because this was... One of my favorite aspects of this research, um, and this might ring a bell to uh, some listeners who have read about this, there were cases in the Middle Ages of nunneries having issues with all of the nuns breaking out into meowing at certain hours of the day. Yes, uh, it actually got to a point in France that soldiers were called to tamp down these Meowing nuns. Uh, but, you know, cats were believed to be in league with Satan. And so this that was a fear. Cats and Satan and nuns and religion. You've got it all. Yeah. And uh, this isn't just an isolated incident either. Uh, this is cited in that British Journal of Psychiatry review. There were more than 100 books alone on these outbreaks in France, just in France, between 1632 and 1634. I mean, talk about a mass hysteria. Right. And in, I mean, speaking of nuns in the 15th century in Germany, you have biting nuns and these, this, uh, this issue of nuns who were biting each other and other people, it spread as far as Rome. This is before social media people. This yeah. is in the 15th century. Yeah. And it wasn't just meowing cats. You would also have nuns who would bark like dogs, bleat like sheep. Apparently there's a real old McDonald theme going on with these uh, possessions, but they would also in more extreme cases, like rip off their veils and gesticulate sex acts, mm-hmm. very un nunly to make up a word kinds of things. Well, I mean, you have to think about also the context of this. Context is very important. And a lot of the women who ended up as nuns perhaps were not sent there willingly. A lot of these women were kind of forced into it. And so, you know, thinking back to how kind of kooky and wonky I felt during the snow apocalypse here in Atlanta being cooped up in my house, you know, I can just imagine how it would feel to be cooped up in a nunnery when you didn't want to be a nun in the first place. Yeah, that was like 48 hours in your house with with mass media at your I fingertips. Was, I was barking within four hours. <laughs> uh, but re- religion does have a pretty strong tie to these hysterias as well, because you also see it happening among groups of Quakers in Britain at certain times, and also Quakers in America. Methodists in Britain had their own streaks of mass hysteria. There was a czar cult in Ethiopia. This this isn't just isolated to one region of the world or one specific religion, uh, it, especially during this early history of mass hysteria. It is kind of breaking out. All over the place. And then again, in 1692, we have the Salem witch trials. Right. And so this quote unquote witch mania begins in December 1691 when eight girls living around Salem started showing really strange behavior, including disordered speech, convulsive movements and bizarre conduct. Certainly sounds like the stuff that we see uh, we've seen a couple years ago throughout New York, uh, Danvers, etc. And explanations for their fits ranged from fakery to hysteria to poisoning of the food supply. Soon after this, hundreds of residents get accused of witchcraft and the trials start. And this madness ended in May of 1693 when the governor ordered all suspects released. But we would be remiss to skip over a huge portion of hysteria history. Did you like how I just 
Hysteria. Hi- or just history with a, with two Ys. Perfect. Dancing mania. Oh, the dancing mania. I see, you know, a little part of me wishes, I, I don't wish I had been alive in the 14th century, but it would be cool to zoom back there for a second just to take part in one of these dancing manias. Because long before we have the meowing nuns and Salem witch trials, way, way back in 1374, we have the first reports of dancing mania. Sounds like a wonderful activity, except that a lot of people died. Yeah, these should not be confused with like dance marathons right. of the 20s and 30s. No, th- this was this was a whole different thing happening in Europe that was thought to be caused yet again by demonic possession. But I mean, of course, they thought it was demons because they didn't really have much <laughs> much medical know-how at the time. Right. And it's worth pointing out that uh, the Chronicles of 1374 talk about all of these people dancing, but it was men and women. This was not this was not just women. Um, you know, people were running around screaming, calling on the mercy of God and the saints. But there is a stress link. The 1374 dancing mania outbreak occurred just after a devastating flood. But the fascinating thing about this is that when a dancing mania would stop in one part of a country, it would spring up in another. It started to leap around different parts of Europe. But again, bringing up that stress factor, dancers were primarily found in the poorest classes of society and authorities were terrified seeing all these poor people out dancing. I mean, leaving their jobs and also women dancing was a a giant panic for the powers to be at the time, too, because, hey, who's going to do the domestic duties if the the housewives are out dancing? Uh, Answer, nobody or maybe uh, babies (laughs) or something like that. Uh, But they were they wanted to stop these dance manias because they were scared that it would spread to nobility. And then there would be just anarchy, I suppose. Yeah, well, flash forward to the 15th century, and this stuff is still happening. And the mania became known as St. Vitus's Dance, based on the legend that St. Vitus had been formally entrusted by God to protect his followers from being affected. And they didn't start declining until the 16th century. But you have the Dancing Plague of 1518, during which a woman... A woman began to dance fervently in the street in Strasbourg, and within a week, 34 others had joined her. Within a month, the crowd grew to about 400. So it's like the earliest and slowest flash mob. But a dangerous flash mob at that, because a lot of the people who participated in this eventually died from heart attack, stroke, or sheer exhaustion. Right. Again, we have to look at the stress link here. The inhabitants of Strasbourg were reeling from severe famine uh, and their morale had already been shattered by bouts of syphilis, smallpox and the plague. So they were dealing with quite a bit of scary health issues. It was pretty stressful in Strasbourg. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, uh, In Italy, this might sound familiar to some people who have heard of the term Tarantism. And uh, this is the thought that these dance manias were caused by the venom from some kind of uh, spider, particularly the tarantula, hence Tarantism. Uh, But there has been no scientific proof that spider bites will cause you to 
form a very slow moving and dangerous flash mob. Yeah, I was bitten by a spider like two years ago. I had a really bad spider bite and I still can't dance. So really, it clearly did not instill me with any dancing superpowers. Yeah, like anti-tarantism. Yeah, I'm just really like slow and uncoordinated. Oh, well. But, you know, the dancing mania uh, became a thing again in 1863 in Madagascar. There was collective dancing and hysteria after the reign of a particular queen on rumors of her comeback. She was so awful that an entire group of people just started freaking out and experiencing mass hysteria. And then hop skip over to Japan in 1867. You have this period of chaotic singing and dancing among the Japanese people in response to a lot of uprisings and economic crises that were happening at the time. And I think what's interesting as you move into in the West, as you move into the Industrial Revolution and you have all of these people sitting in factories all day, factories and mills, you start to get these outbreaks of mass hysteria because, I mean, these people are cooped up in horrible conditions for a ridiculous number of hours each day. And so you start to get uh, reports of things happening in mills and factories. But also at this time, you, you're getting the establishment of like general hospitals and other institutions institutions in Europe to basically take care of, I don't know, the undesirable element. And so all of a sudden you have people being institutionalized for their strange behavior, and then it just breaks out all over again. It becomes the cycle. Yeah. And speaking of the Industrial Revolution, it's notable that as reported in the book, Mass Psychogenic Illness, a social psychological analysis, a real real nice bedtime read, (laughs) FYI, uh, they talk about how the very first modern reported outbreak at a cotton mill happens in 1787, which took place right after the invention of the power loom, which revolutionized the textile industry. It really increased the speed of production. And yeah, even more you have uh, with all these machines being developed, that factory work of just menial, repetitive labor happening in people in confined areas. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's prime territory for some kind of mass hysteria to break out. Yeah, but also so many social changes, women leaving the homes and going to work, you know, being in mills and stuff. You know, it's just uh, as the world changes around you, that can that can induce a lot of stress. Well, speaking of women, Caroline, we have to dig into this gender link that always comes up with mass hysteria because there is a lot to talk about there because I'm not I'm not entirely buying the fact that this disproportionately affects women, even though I know I should. So let's get into that when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the show. So what about the women then? Because like we said at the top of the podcast, a lot of like people like Robert Bartholomew, who's an expert in this, always brings up gender. And, you know, in the dance manias, that was a co-ed phenomenon. But today... It's often framed as something that happens almost exclusively to high school girls. And even we have not pointed out the fact that, uh, as some listeners, some gold star sminty listeners might recall that the derivation of hysteria is directly related to women. Right. As it refers to our crazy wandering wombs. I know they just wander all over the place. Yeah. Because if you don't put a baby in it. Right. Then it's going to leave you. 
and make you do crazy things like, I don't know, want to have sex or dance in the streets, apparently. Well, what you need is, you know how when you buy a, a balloon at the grocery store, they give you those little weights? To tie yes. the, you need one of those for your uterus. Womb weights. Womb weights. Perfect. We're Womb. gonna, we're gonna make a million dollars. That's right. Uh, well, so anyway, uh, another hysteria expert, John Waller, who wrote A Time to Dance, A Time to Die, the extraordinary story of the dancing plague of 1518, wrote that women and girls are nearly always overrepresented among these outbreaks. And it is that gender imbalance that's often a giveaway that the epidemic is not organic, that it's not actual food poisoning, that it's not actual, you know, chemical spills or whatever. And, you know, we've been talking about theories and Waller points out that in more misogynistic times, this was put down to us having more fragile nerves or, you know, our wombs floating all over the place. Um, and while there may be some type of biological component or something in our brains doing something weird, Some people have put forward the theory that women are more likely to succumb because of the frustrations of living in patriarchal cultures, living in families and societies dominated by men. And going off of that theory, some even argue that hysteria offers distressed women a legitimate reason to, quote unquote, check out for a while. (laughs) <laughs> just dance their troubles away. Yeah. Although if you watch interviews, for instance, with those girls more recently affected by this, they are not checked out. It seems incredibly painful and disruptive to the point they had to leave school for a while. Right. But, you know, there was a huge, uh, there was that Atlantic piece and there was a huge New York Times piece about these young women who were going through that. And they point out that almost to the to a woman, these young girls had experienced something awful in their lives when it came to their parental situation. A lot of them had missing or absent fathers. Um, you know, there was one girl who her father was completely out of her life until she basically was on the news with this condition. And then he came back. Um, and in the New York Times piece, you could tell that the writer uh, was was trying to hint at that in her interviews with these young women and that they were like, no, 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 no. Because more than anything, these young women or, or young people in general who are experiencing this want to think that they're not crazy. They want to think that there is a better, more logical reason for what they are going through, this scary, scary thing that they're going through, other than just suggestibility. Right. I mean, uh, that issue of psychological trauma, too, that might have been repressed over the years, also came up in the case of the older woman highlighted in the Atlantic piece who was not a high schooler, the one we talked about who, you know, might have been exposed via Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, she had been raped um, as a girl and never talked about it at all. And then all of a sudden we have this psychogenic illness come up and that came out in her therapy for this case, and and she feels like this was, it, it kind of unleashed all of that repression. Right. And one of the physicians interviewed in the New York Times talked about how her approach to these girls was so delicate because you had you couldn't just write off their health scares, their frustrations. So she did test for things like the thyroid, all, all sorts of different possible health conditions. And then she said, you know what? But just, just to be on the safe side, you know, you're going, this is such a stressful thing that you're going through. Why don't we go ahead and set you up with a counselor, a therapist, and you can just include, you know, mental health as part of your regimen. And she explained that the girls who were talking to someone seeking actual mental health counseling were seeing improvements. 
So it sounds like over time, these symptoms just kind of fade away. They do tend to like that was one of the things that was in those two long form articles about this this issue is that eventually they do kind of just disappear they're, they're They tend to be kind of self-propagating, you know, with social media, with things like social media and with that that hyper focus on something's wrong with me. Oh, God, something's going awful with my health or my brain or something. And it seems like that focus on mental health was definitely helping. Yeah. One thing, though, that left me wanting with all of these all of this reading on mass hysteria is that there was still no real hard scientific evidence suggesting that this is something that affects women more. You know what I mean? Because Bartholomew has said that, well, it might be an issue of observer bias and methodological flaws. Maybe we just hear more about this happening to girls. Um, it could be more likely that uh, women emote outwardly, whereas men tend to emote inwardly. Um, and also in that British Journal of Psychiatry literature review, it mentions that it's often linked to gender, but then there's no follow-up. It doesn't offer right. any conclusive proof. I mean, there there is that theory, though, about mirror neurons, mm-hmm. um, which essentially is that mirror neurons are, like you and I are probably, our mirror neurons are probably firing a lot right now because we're sitting across from each other, we're having this conversation, and we are now gesturing, which if people could see us, we're now <laughs> gesturing in tandem to each other. And and those are the, the neurons in our brain in a very elementary sort of way. Mm-hmm. It's what helps us interact with people and sort of pick up on tone. And a lot of times they tend to be more active in female brains. And right. so there's one theory that was published in the journal aptly called Medical Hypotheses hmm. that perhaps the uh, these kinds of hysterias affect women more be- due to higher activity of our motor cortex and mirror neurons. Or that whole stereotype about women and empathy. Yes, exactly, exactly. And that would offer some kind of neurological explanation. But again, that's still just a hypothesis. Right. Because it's not like this doesn't happen to men. It does happen to men. And I was wondering, as I was going through all this stuff, I was wondering, okay, so I, I get it. Okay, women are overrepresented in all this stuff that's been proven, blah, whatever. But does it ever happen just to men? And oh boy, does it. And it's called Koro. Uh, it's a phenomenon experienced by men typically in Asia. Uh, thousands of men in Southeast Asia and China in times of economic uncertainty uh, have been known to believe that their penises are shrinking into their bodies and that death will ensue if they become fully retracted. Yeah, and um, the last time Koro seemed to flare up in China was in 1985, so it's been a little while, but there was this widespread fear that a fox spirit that roams the land was in search of male victims. And there's a similar kind of penis-shrinking panic that has also broken out among men in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. So similar to these, you know, dance manias that spread around different cultures, this is also seems to be some kind of cross-cultural phenomenon. And if you want a, a Western context for this, there was a report in 1988 of this happening among just male military recruits at a California army barrack 
um, after there was, uh, p- some people were experiencing breathing problems from some mm. strange odor that was spreading. And so panic ensues. All these guys are laid out with all sorts of horrifying symptoms, uh, a mass hysteria like event happening. And it turns out that the strange odor was simply a brush fire. But it was the mm. same kind of uh, power of suggestion, mm-hmm. nocebo effect susceptibility. Yeah. Guys are vulnerable to it, too, clearly. Yeah. Because if you already have a pre-existing fear or concern, if it gets into your head that something awful and poisonous or, you know, something that's risking your health is happening, it's easy to believe, like, oh, oh, no. Oh, yeah. Do you ever, does this ever happen to you uh, where if you smell gas in your house, this happened to me a couple of times, I immediately start, like, mentally symptom checking of, like, am I breathing okay? Am I sleepy? Am I, do I need to get out? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, when I worked at a newspaper, um, the printing, the giant printing press was in the same building. And so knowing that that those tiny particles of ink were traveling through the air towards me in the newsroom. I mean, I, you know, I would start to feel really congested, although that probably I probably really was congested because ink was in my nose. Were you were you that person wearing the face mask at all times? I still do all the time. I actually try to wear like a scuba mask at all times. I finally banned the face mask from the podcast studio because it was just a tad too creepy. Oh, that's too bad. Um, but one thing, you know, we haven't um, mentioned like the types of girls that this tends to happen to when it does affect solely girls at high schools. One uh, one piece of information, one tidbit that was pointed out in the New York Times is that cheerleaders frequently come up in these case histories of mass psychogenic illness at schools, partly because these outbreaks, these particular types of outbreaks, tend to start with someone of high social status. And so in reading that New York Times article, you know, they're, the writer is interviewing these two girls at the same time in, in one of the girls' rooms and talking about how she even noticed that they, as they were talking, they were mirroring each other's behavior and one said her stomach hurt and then 10 minutes later the other said her stomach hurt and so there's this whole idea of like the issue of popularity of admiring someone above you on the social you know hierarchy or whatever and then kind of falling prey to what they say they're experiencing absolutely and then there of course are all these questions of well are these young women simply faking it so that they can also get on the today show or whatever media outlet it might be and so then with all these reports of young women being affected and that it seems to just be like a popularity thing and all these girls may be faking it or maybe they're not then you have some theories about girls adolescents in particular being pathologized Yeah, so uh, Caitlin Flanagan, as she often does, who is more of a conservative commentator about especially girls and also women, she wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times in response to all of these reports of hysteria breaking out and essentially said in a rather flip kind of way, hey, everybody, look, this is simply good old-fashioned Freudian hysteria breaking out because in a nutshell... Teenage female adolescence is a time of emotional upheaval and panic, and girls tend to, like I said earlier, emote outward. And so stop trying to explain it away. And can we just say that this is this is just girls being girls? Yeah, exactly. She almost seemed frustrated that people were trying to come up with reasons for it or even show that it can happen to boys and men. Two, you know, she was like, oh, sorry, guys. I know it's not empowering for you, but you just have to deal with it. Yeah. And her her solution 
for these kinds of instances was that girls simply need more protection. Right. And she wrote a book along those lines, too, that we need to keep our girls safe. And during this turbulent time of adolescence, we need to, you know, make sure they have quiet, safe spaces at the home in which to be basically crazy banshees is the word she used. Yeah. And here's the thing. I don't doubt the issue of susceptibility. And sure. I mean, there was <laughs> there was one article, I forget which one it was, but uh, talked about how some neurologists were watching one of these reports uh, from the BBC uh, and it was showing a teenage girl who was affected who had a, a physical tick that magically seemed to stop when she started to put on eyeliner mm-hmm. and it just switched to the other hand. And the doctors were like, whoa, 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 that doesn't that does not happen. That would not happen normally in your brain. This really can't be what's going on. Or in the case of uh, one girl who had a tick, if a, a doctor squeezed the, the tremoring hand, the tremor would then suddenly move to the other side of her body. And they were like, that's really not the way these kinds of things usually work. So the, sure, there is, you can't deny the power of suggestion with this, but uh, I I personally, to editorialize myself, did not really appreciate Flanagan's assumptions about how this is just every girl's, you know. Basically that every young girl is crazy. Kind of. And that, yeah, it's like, yeah, she's. I think she's falling back on some very dated stereotypes about, you know, women needing to be quiet and be in the home and recover from all of the stress that is life. Yeah, and of, and of course there are plenty of rebuttals, such as Isha Pandit over at Feministing, who's like, whoa, 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 quit pathologizing young girls, you know, stop painting us as fragile things that need to just be hidden away during our teen years. Because didn't we learn anything from the meowing nuns? If, yeah. you, if you send if you send girls away to a convent, <laughs> ugh, you might have some problems there too. Nothing. I'm. Joking completely. I'm nothing against nuns at all. But you know what I mean? Like, that's, yeah. uh, trying to repress a lot of this tends to result out of repression and is often relieved by expression. Right. But I will be curious to see if Bartholomew's prediction of these being, these incidences being on the rise via social media mm-hmm. really plays out. Yeah. Because, I mean, he says that there's been a massive upsurge, but we still hear about them happening kind of few and far between. Um, but I, I, I'm wondering in the next like 20 years, are we going to have more cases of this breaking out or are we simply going to grow more skeptical? I, I don't know. Those are good questions. Yeah. And those are questions for our listeners. What, what do you think about this? Have you heard of these mass hysterias? Are you from Danvers? Are you, has this ever happened to you? Um, let us know your thoughts about this. Momstuffdiscovery.com is where you can send us an email. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or send us a message over on Facebook. And this was a, a little bit of a different kind of topic for us to cover. But such a rich history Mm -hmm. to dig into. And yeah, dancing mania. Caroline, if you could go back in time to a 14th century dancing mania, would you do it? Uh, I have no rhythm and I love sitting. So I might dance for a little while uh, in a herky jerky fashion. And then, you know, I don't know, go eat some some gruel. Oof. 
That sounds awful. Yeah, well, so does the 14th century. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, send us your thoughts. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is our email address, and we have a couple of letters to share with you right now. We've got a couple of letters here about our episode, Fictional Attraction, all about shipping and one true pairing and parasocial relationships. And this one is coming from Eliza, who's, uh, and the subject line is, My Dear Friends from the Office. She writes, The American Office immediately comes to mind when I think about strong fictional relationships in my life. I started watching the show in high school and formed many of my closest friendships in college because of it. I even had an office-themed birthday party the first two weeks away from home freshman year. Side note, I dressed up like Pam. Like most fans, I fell in love with Jim and Pam's relationship instantly and often looked to their connection as a model for what I wanted in a partner. But it wasn't just their love story that I fell for. It was the entire cast. I started to feel like they were another group of friends that I could visit anytime I wanted on Netflix or Hulu. There were two occasions that The Office broke my heart. The first was when Michael Scott, played by Steve Carell, left the show, and the second was the series finale. I really don't mean to sound crazy because I'm an emotionally sound person, but I was pretty much a wreck when it ended. It marked the end of a life chapter. I realized I grew into an adult over nine seasons when it was over. I reflected on what the show had given me. After the series finale aired, I wrote the cast a letter, and I was never planning on sending it. It was really just for myself. But I deeply wished that somehow I could tell Jim, Michael, Dwight, Pam, and the rest of my office friends a genuine thank you and goodbye. I think that's kind of sweet. Well, I have a letter here from Elizabeth about uh, One True Pairings as a coping strategy. Uh, she says, a few months ago, I would have been in your situation of not knowing the terms OTP and shipping. I love the TV show Sherlock done by the BBC. The only problem with Sherlock is that it's a two year gap between seasons and each season is only three episodes long. Therefore, fans have to find a way to stay interested yet sane during this long hiatus. Fan fiction is a huge portion of this coping strategy. A lot of fanfic focuses on a relationship between Sherlock Holmes and John Watson, usually shortened to John Locke. I read John Locke fiction quite a bit, and it keeps me interested in the show and the characters while allowing me to explore situations that are not in the actual show. I love it. It has also had the benefit of making me calm down a little about sexual situations. I was sexually abused for several years and still have panic attacks if such situations come up again. Reading fanfic about sexual relationships that are healthy has helped me heal a little bit, for which I am extremely grateful. So thank you very much, Elizabeth. And, yeah, speaking of Sherlock, I have a feeling a lot of listeners have parasocial relationships with Benedict Cumberbatch. Even though, oh my god, I'm going to get so much hate mail for this. I think he is so weird looking. He looks like an otter. Yeah. Have you ever seen otters that look like Benedict Cumberbatch? It's like the best tumbler. When I heard that he was going to be on Sesame Street, I was like, that's appropriate. He looks like a Muppet. Well, I'm sure that has sparked plenty of uh, listener thoughts. So send us your letters. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is our email address. Or if you'd like to connect to us elsewhere on social or find old podcasts, blog posts, and all of our videos, there's one place to go. It's your one-stop sminty shop. StuffMomNeverToldYou.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.